You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's good to be with you all these two days, and I want to recognize it's a big risk for the Episcopalians to invite a Presbyterian into the pulpit. Uh, The last time y'all asked me to do this three or four years ago, I was told you have 14 minutes and we're turning the microphone off at 16 minutes. They didn't threaten me this time, so buckle up. We like to go 35 or 40. Uh, You can get your lunches to go if you need to. No, but we're going to look at Matthew 13 very briefly, Presbyterianly briefly, um, and a couple of parables Jesus offers. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in joy, he hid it again, sold everything he owned to get enough money and buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered the pearl of great value, he sold everything that he owned and he bought it. Let's pray. Father, teach us what it means to understand the joy and the love that you have in store for us. We need your Holy Spirit to do work in our hearts, simply comprehending ideas. It's not what faith in following you is, but being transformed by your good news and by your Holy Spirit is what we need. In your name we pray. Amen. David Brooks is an op-ed writer for the New York Times that I've been reading pretty consistently for 10 years. And over the last several years, if you read him or enjoy him, you might have noticed that little themes started to sneak into his writing. That over the last several years, he started to quote C.S. Lewis and sometimes John Calvin and sometimes Tim Keller when he's writing on politics and culture. And what's only recently become public in the last couple of years is that over the last decade, as he thought deeply and wrote about politics and about culture, he was also secretly engaging the wisdom of God in scripture and becoming a Christian. And in the middle of that journey, he delivered a speech at Dartmouth for their commencement in 2015. And here's something he said during that commencement speech. He told the graduates, your fulfillment in life will not come from how well you explore your freedom and keep your options open. Your fulfillment in life will come by how well you end your freedom. By the time you hit your 30s, you'll realize that your primary mission in life is to be really good at making commitments. And making commitments sounds intimidating, but it's not. Making a commitment simply means falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it that will carry you through when their feeling of love falters. When you make a commitment to something you truly love, whether it's a spouse, a job, a company, or school, it won't feel like you'll be putting on an uncomfortable shell that constricts you. It'll feel like you're taking off the shell and becoming what you were meant to be. When you're making a commitment, you won't be paralyzed by self-focus because you'll have something other than yourself to think about. I think that was David Brooks' way of framing the wisdom of Jesus given in this parable. We were made to give our lives for something, not protect our lives from everything. The purpose of life and the purpose of our children's lives is not to self-optimize. It's not to protect ourselves from risk and to provide as many safe opportunities for career, material, social, political, and intellectual ascendancy, safety, comfort, and control. The purpose of life and also for the lives of our children is not to self-optimize. It's to experience, that means feel, the joy of finding something you love so much that you're willing to give your life for it. 
When Jesus says in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find life. He's telling us this, self-protection, self-obsession with self-improvement and self-actualization, looking inside of the self for what I want most for myself. We believe that's the purpose of life, and Jesus is telling us that, in fact, that is the source of our spiritual crisis. Because this is the thing he's telling us about life and happiness, that as long as we're making all of our decisions about who to be and what to do based on a complex calculation of what could or would make us happy, we'll never be happy. When Jesus tells us, on the other hand, to take up our cross, that means to decenter ourselves, to remove yourself from the center of your life, abandon ourselves to something else outside of us, he's not inviting us to emptiness. He's inviting us into fullness. You are made to be happy, to feel truly full, and to res- you are made to feel resilient and strong. And what God intended you to be, you or God even made you to be happy. He wants you to be happy. But it doesn't come when you live to avoid the most possible pain and keep the most possible options open and focus on your personal happiness and remove toxic people and leverage all of your opportunities and resources to the most possible self-actualization of your inner impulses. Life, rather, and happiness is found fullness, joy, the thing everybody wants and God wants for you is found when you find something that's worth living and dying for. And when you do so, here's what will happen when you find something worth living and dying for. You will suffer more. Suffering and joy are not mutually exclusive. They're very intimately related. You'll suffer more and you'll have more joy than you ever knew you could have. That's what it means to be alive in the kingdom. That's Jesus's point. When we seek to protect our lives from any and everything, we actually lose our lives and we lose our humanity. And Jesus, when he invites us to follow him, following him is not trying really hard to behave. And actually, that's really easier. Moralism is always easier than actually what Jesus is calling us to because the Christian life, following him, means living a life of love. And it's a love that looks like our Savior's love. It's the commitment to invest our lives, me, you, into the delighting of another. That you are fundamentally about making someone else happy and joyful with the way you live your life. It's the commitment, the investment to, into the delighting of another for the joy set before you. And what that feels like is it feels like you're giving up everything. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says to follow him is to deny yourself and take up your cross. The cross represents the notion of choosing to sacrifice your interests and your life in order to invest your time and your energy and your resources into the delighting of another. That's what love is, and that's what it means to be alive. Here's what else the cross means. Love, that kind of love that makes you feel alive, costs you everything. The two men, what does it cost them for the joy of possessing what their hearts treasure? In order to have it, they had to sell everything. Not most of their stuff, everything. And they have no regrets. They only have full joy on the other side of the transaction. The key ingredients to experience the deepest delight, the deepest joy... Jesus and God want you to be happy and experience joy. 
our triune God. And the key ingredient to that is sacrifice. We, what we want is we want joy that doesn't cost us anything. And that does not exist. That's not how joy works. The joy of love is unleashed in the sacrifice that you make for it. Here's what I mean. I have four high school girls I told you all about yesterday. They have cost me more than I could have ever imagined. Many of you know this cost. They've cost me financially and socially and emotionally and psychologically and physically more than any. They control my life. None of my decisions are made independent from them. They've cost me my independence and my autonomy. Y'all all know this. All of my rights and freedoms have been given up to them. I've never been happier. And I've lost more to know them. The joy, the, the feeling and the fullness of joy of having something worthy of love is unlocked and it's unleashed in the giving up of everything else in order to have that love. And what we've got to wrestle with is we've got to wrestle with the fact that we are hedging on our relationship with Jesus. The reason that we're not happy, the reason we don't feel joy is not because he's not good. It's because you can never enjoy a relationship that you hedge by also holding on to several other loves and hopes and dreams in case this one doesn't work out. Taking up our cross means following Jesus. It means everything that we have is given to him. It means our jobs are his and he gets to speak into them. It means our money is his and he has control over it. Our sexuality and our weekends, our choice of spouse, our children and our children's future, our future, our time, our bodies, everything, our autonomy, our independence, and our politics. It means they're all his. But the joy of love is only available in the sacrifices you make for it. And love that costs us little to nothing is love that will mean little to nothing to you. Jesus wants everything, but also know this. Something in your life, or more likely some collection of things in our lives, is going to take our everything. Something is demanding our lives. We are all giving our lives to something. And possibly the reason we can't identify that one thing is because we've never learned to think deeply about why or how we're trying to meet deeper needs with our decisions. Or more likely, we've diversified our heart's portfolio with so many small flimsy loves that we can't really identify a singular love that we give our lives to. But know this. If we don't abandon our lives and give, them to, give our lives to Jesus, something does get your life. You don't get to keep it. Your life is being poured out minute by minute to something. You still lose your life. But to a collection of things that are not worth your life, we're all sacrificing our lives to something. A collection of many gods and many hopes. And friends, Jesus is the one worthy thing. So how can you know he's worth that investment, right? We all learn to diversify our portfolios. That sounds like wisdom, but in this case, it's folly. How do we know he's the one worth love? He's the only one you can love because he's the only love that gave up everything to have you. Jesus never asks us to do anything that he has not done for us already. For the joy Listen to this. Jesus unlocked joy in his own heart and his own experience. How? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He took up his cross to purchase you, gave his life to have you, his love, his self-giving for you. And him having you, his sacrifice for you is what precedes and empowers our ability to give our lives for him. Anything else that you can give your life to will demand your life from you. 
and never give anything back. It'll always be temporary and contingent. What does the world do if we worship the beauty cult, the beauty cult right? Well, as soon as your body doesn't fit the beauty mold, you're rejected. What does the world do if you worship our achievement in vocational and professional religion, right? If you make a critical error, you're fired. If you, marry, if you, if you worship the romantic cult, right, then all of a sudden if you don't make your romantic partner happy, they leave you. What do, if, you don't, if you worship the social cult, if you no longer behave according to the norms of the place you're trying to get accepted, well, eventually they leave you behind. What does the world do with the awkward, right? Avoids them. What does the achievement culture do with the less than supremely committed and talented? Well, it relegates you to the middle class or worse. What does the world do with the aging and dying? Ships them off. What does the world do with the morally flawed? Cancels them, right? If you haven't experienced it already, the world, which by the way is, is us, is always asking us to give ourselves over to something. And if you prove worthy, there are temporary rewards but they are always contingent and will eventually be taken from you. But here's the thing about Jesus. He's pretty sneaky. When you give him your work, when you give him your ambition, when you give him your children, when you give him your sexuality, when you give him your future, and when you give him your weekends, when you give him your guilt, when you give him your happiness and you give him your anger, he doesn't, when you give him your time, he doesn't remove all of these things from your life. He repositions them to their proper place. He saves us from them, and in so doing, redeems those things for us. When those things become our life, they become our prisons. When Jesus becomes our life, those things are restored to the places where they're meant to be, not the place where we forge our identity and seek safety, comfort, and security. You now have an identity, you now have a safety, you now have a comfort, you now have a security. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And instead, all of those things you gave to him now become the places that you actually express and enjoy your freedom and delight to use those things in service to other image bearers because you're so sure of what you have in Jesus. It's an invitation to engage his world. No longer this world, everything you do from here on out, no longer is a series of proving grounds, hoping to please so many little gods or even just a few gods that can't give you life. But now, your workplace, your classroom, the field, parenting, marriage, landscaping, nursing, cooking, everything now is something even better. They're restored from being your proving ground, and instead what they're all intended to be from the very beginning were playgrounds for exploring and enjoying God's good creation and serving others. Following Jesus, it costs everything, but you get him, you get joy, and you get all of creation in return. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. We hold on to so many things with our hearts. Thank you that you're the one who even grants us faith to follow you. Grant us that faith now. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.